Hello, and welcome to this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. As always, we'll start with the same format. First the story, then a discussion about the story and the story's origins, and then today's recipe and the history behind it. Today's story is Cenerentola, an Italian folk tale from Stories of the Pentamarone, or Tale of Tales, as collected by Gian Battista Basile, an Italian poet. So, relax, gentle listener, and we'll begin. There once lived a prince who was a widower. He had an only daughter, so dear to him, and he kept a governess for her, who taught her chain work and knitting and to make lace, and showed her so much affection. But she was still very lonely without her mother, and many a time she said to the governess, Oh, you should have been my mother. You should show me such kindness and love. And she said this so often, at last, the governess, having got a bee in her bonnet about it, said to her, If you will do as this foolish head of mine advises, I'll be a mother to you, and you'll be as dear to me as the apple of my eye. She was going to say more, when Zazola stopped her. I know you mean me well, she said. Just show me what I need to do. Well then, answered the governess, open your ears and listen. You know well enough that your father would even coin false money to please you. So, the next time he asks you what you want to make you happy, tell him you wish him to marry me and make me princess. And then, lo and behold, I'll be your mother. When Zazola heard this, every hour seemed to her a thousand years until she'd done all that her governess had advised. And, as soon as the mourning period for her mother's death was ended, she began to talk to her father and beg him to marry the governor. At first, the prince took it as a joke, but Cezola went on going on and on and on, and at length, he gave way to her entreaties. So, he married the governess and gave a great feast at the wedding. Now, while the young people were dancing and Cezola was standing at the window of her home, a dove came flying and perched upon a wall and said to her, Whenever you need anything, send the request to the dove of the fairies in the island of Sardinia, and you will instantly have what you wish. For five or six days, her new stepmother overwhelms Zazola with love, seating her at the best place at the table, giving her the choicest morsels to eat, and clothing her in the most beautiful clothes. But, before long, forgetting entirely the good service she had received, she began to bring forward six daughters of her own, for she had never before told anyone that she was a widow with a bunch of girls, and she praised them so much and talked her husband over in such fashion that last the stepdaughters had all of his favour, and the thought of his own child went entirely from his heart. In short, it fared so ill with a poor girl, bad today and worse tomorrow, that she was last brought down from the royal chamber to the kitchen, from the canopy of state to the hearth, and from the splendid apparel of silks and gold to rags, from the sceptre to the spit. Not only was her condition changed, but even her name, for instead of Zuzola, she was now Cenerentola. Now after this sad state of affairs had continued for some weeks, it happened that the prince had occasion to go to Sardinia upon affairs of state, and calling upon his six stepdaughters, asked them one by one what they'd like him to bring back on his return. One wished for beautiful dresses, another for hair ornaments, another rouge for her face, another toys and trinkets, one wished for this and one for that, and at last the prince said to his own daughter, as if in mockery. And what would you have, child? Nothing, father, she replied, but that you commend me to the dove of the fairies and bid her send me something. And if you forget my request, may you be unable to stir backwards or forwards. The prince laughed and went away and did his business in Sardinia and procured all the things his stepdaughters had asked for. But poor Zazola was quite out of his thoughts and going on board a ship he set sail to return, but the ship could not get out of the harbour 
It was stuck fast as if it was held by a sea monster. The captain of the ship, who was almost in despair and fairly tired out, laid himself down to sleep, and in his dream he saw a fairy who said to him, Do you know the reason why you cannot work the ship out of port? It is because the prince who is on board with you has broken his promise to his daughter, remembering everyone except his own child. Then the captain awoke and told his dream to the prince. Although he may have toned it down a little, no one wants to be the one telling the prince. It's all his fault. The prince, who, in shame and confusion at the breach of his promise, went to the grotto of the fairies and, commending his daughter to them, asked them to send her something. And behold, there stepped forth from the grotto a beautiful maiden, who told him she thanked his daughter for her kind remembrances, and bade him to tell her to be merry and of good heart out of love to her, and therefore she gave him a date tree, a hoe, and a little bucket all of gold, and a silken napkin, adding that the one was to hoe with, and the other to water the plant. The prince, marvelling at this present, took leave of the fairy and returned to his own country, and when he had given his stepdaughters all the things they had desired, he at last gave his own daughter the gift which the fairy had sent her. Then Zazola, out of her wits with joy, took the date tree and planted it in a pretty flower pot, hoed the earth around it, watered it, and wiped its leaves morning and evening with a silken napkin. In a few days it had grown as tall as a woman, and out of it came a fairy, who said to Zazola, What do you wish for? And Zazola replied that she wished sometimes to leave the house without her sister's knowledge. The fairy answered, Whenever you desire this, come to the flower pot and say, My little date tree, my golden tree, with a golden hoe I have hoed thee, with a golden can have I watered thee, with a silken cloth I have wiped thee dry, now strip thee and dress me speedily. And when you wish to undress, change the last words and say, Strip me and dress thee. A grand feast was due to be held, which Zazola had not been invited to, because she had been forgotten, now she had been sent down to the kitchens. When the time for the feast arrived, and the stepmother's daughters appeared, dressed so fine, all ribbons and flowers, and silk slippers and shoes, sweet smells and bells, roses and posies, the Zola ran quickly to the flower pot, and no sooner had she repeated the words the fairy had given her, she saw herself arrayed like a queen, seated upon a palfrey, and attended by twelve smart pages, all in their best clothes. Then she went to the ball and made the sisters envious of this unknown beauty. Even the young king himself was there, and as soon as he saw her, he stood magic-bound with amazement, and ordered a trusty servant to find out who was that beautiful maiden and where she lived. So the servant followed in her footsteps, but when Zazola noticed the trick, she threw on the ground a handful of crown pieces she had asked the date tree to give her for this purpose. Then the servant lighted his lantern, was so busy picking up all the pieces, he forgot to follow the palfrey, and Zazola came home quite safely and had changed her clothes, as the fairy had told her, before the wicked sisters arrived to vex her and make her envious and tell her of all the fine things they'd seen and the wonderful things they'd done. But the king was very angry with the servant and warned him not to miss finding out next time who this beautiful maiden was and where she dwelt. The next night there was another feast and again the sisters all went to it, leaving poor Zazola at home on the kitchen hearth. As soon as they left she ran quickly to the date tree, repeated the spell and instantly there appeared a number of damsels, one with a mirror, another with a bottle of rose water, another with curling irons, another with combs, another with pins, another with dresses, another with capes and collars and they decked her out as glorious as the sun, and put her in a coach drawn by six white horses and attended by footmen and pages and livery. No sooner did she arrive in the ballroom than the hearts of the sisters were filled with amazement, and the king was overcome with love. When Zazola went home, the servant followed her again, but so that she'd not be caught, she threw down a handful of pearls and jewels, and the good fellow, 
seeing how valuable the things were, stayed to pick them up, so she had time to slip away and take off her fine dress, as the night before. Meanwhile, the servant had returned slowly to the king, who was really cross when he saw him. By the souls of my ancestors, if you don't find out who she is, you'll such, have such a thrashing as was never heard before, and as many kicks as you've got hairs in your beard. When the next feast was held, and the sisters were safely out of the house, Cezola went to the date tree, and once again repeated the spell. In an instant, she found herself splendidly arrayed, and seated in a coach of gold. She had so many servants around her, that she looked just like a queen. Again, the sisters were beside themselves with envy, but this time, when she left the ballroom, the king's servant kept close to the coach. Zazola, seeing the man was running by her side, cried, Coachman, drive on quickly, and in a trice the coach set off at such a rattling place, she lost one of her slippers, the prettiest thing that ever was seen. The servant, being unable to catch the coach, which flew like a bird, picked up the slipper and carried it to the king, told him all that had happened. The king, taking the beautiful slipper in his hand, at once made a proclamation that all the women in the country should come to a banquet, from which the most splendid provision was made, of pies and pastries and stews and ragouts, macaroni and sweetmeats, enough to feed a whole army, and all the women were assembled, noble and ignoble, rich and poor, beautiful and ugly, and the king tried the slipper on each one of the guests to see whom it would fit perfectly, and thus be able to discover, by the help of the slipper, the maiden of whom he was in search. But not one foot could he find to fit it. So he questioned everyone closely to find out that indeed everyone was there, and the prince confessed that he had left one daughter behind. But, said he, she's always on the hearth, and she's unworthy to sit and eat at your table. But the king said, let her be the very first on the list. So all the guests departed, and the very next day they assembled again, and when the wicked sisters came to Zola. When the king saw her, he had his suspicions but said nothing. And after the feast came the trial of the slipper, which, as soon as it ever approached Zazola's foot, darted onto it of its own accord, like iron filings to a magnet. Seeing this, the king ran to her and took her in his arms, and seating her under the royal canopy, he set the crown upon her head, wherein everyone made obeisance and homage to her as their queen. When the wicked sisters saw this, they were full of venom and rage, and not having patience to look upon the object of their hatred, they slipped away quietly on tiptoe and went home to their mother confessing, in spite of themselves, that you cannot resist that which is fated in the stars. And that, gentle listener, is the end of my tale, and I hope it pleased you, for it had no other purpose. I expect that this story felt familiar to you this week. Well, certain parts of it, anyway. Sanarentola is, in simplistic terms, the Italian Cinderella. The version I based this week's story on is from an English translation of Stories from the Pentamarone by Gian Battista Basile. This is a collection of Italian folk tales and was published long before the famous collections of French and German folk tales. This Italian collection also contains other stories you might recognise, such as Puss in Boots, Rapunzel, Sleeping Beauty and Hansel and Gretel, albeit in slightly different formats. It is now considered to be one of the most influential literary fairy tale collections although it had faded into the obscurity until praised by the brothers Grimm, who said, This collection was for a long time the best and richest that had been found by any nation. Not only were the traditions at that time more complete in themselves, but the author had a special talent for collecting them, and besides that, an intimate knowledge of the dialect. The original was written in Neapolitan dialect, and in this, and other older translations, a lot of nuance was lost when translating it into English. 
The translators also removed a lot of what they considered to be coarse and vulgar language. Stories from the Pentamarone was published posthumously by the author's sister in two parts in 1634 and 1636. The collection of 50 stories is framed by a story within a story in a similar fashion to A Thousand and One Nights, but each story can be read individually. The original Neapolitan version also carried the subtitle Tale of Tales. So, back to Cenerentola. Although, as you may have noticed, there are a lot of similarities to what we now consider the definitive version of Cinderella, there are also some substantial differences. The Disney Cinderella, which is modelled fairly closely on Charles Perrault's 1697 version, also seems to have been the version that influenced the Grimm brothers most strongly. Cinderella is a fairly passive character, which our Italian heroine definitely isn't. In fact, in the original tale, I only found out this out afterwards, she actually murders her first wicked stepmother because of her abuse, before promoting her father's marriage to her governess. You can see why this was cut out in the Victorian translation. She also continually pricks her father with a pin until he agrees to marry the governess. You might notice that this Cinderella is not noticeably kind, even in the Baudelaireized version, but she does use all in her arsenal to change her status back by appealing to strong allies in the form of powerful fairies. Also notice, she doesn't trust her father once he has changed towards her and uses her quick wits to bind him to compliance. She could be considered one of the trickster Cinderellas, as most of the early variants were. The name Cenerentola actually translates better as Cat Cinderella, named because she was clever as a cat. She triumphs because she's clever enough to outwit her governor's stepmother, her six, yes, six, stepsisters, and the king's servant, as well as Lucky in her fairy allies. The other traditional attribute of beauty is also lacking for much of the story. Zozala, for that is our Cinderella's name, seems more interested in making her stepsisters envious with her glorious clothes and increasingly improving retinue. This motive is definitely ahead of using her beauty to attract the king, although that's obviously still part of the plan. Another missing item is the glass slipper, but the embroidered one here does have a magical link to Zozala. The folklore in this variant of the story is concentrated on the powerful fairies and the magical date tree and its valuable tending tools. Let's discuss the fairy first, out of respect. Italy has a long history of fairies known as Vate, Fay in French, a southern European version of the fairies of English and Celtic tradition, though a very distinctive one. Vate are usually regal and positively awe-inspiring. In fact, their appearance, particularly their otherworldly beauty, conveys the strength of their power. The Fete in this tale, although unnamed, is clearly very powerful. She can stop a ship from sailing, as well as provide an incredibly magical tree. Just as an aside, there really is a fairy grotto in Sardinia. It has many stalactites and stalagmites and is hidden behind a waterfall. It's enchanting, and I have references in the further reading below, should you wish to visit, when that sort of thing becomes possible again. The tree is another matter. Dates don't have much folklore significance in this tradition, as far as I can discover, and they're not common in Italy. The date palm is significant in myth and legend, but more in the south of the Mediterranean and the ancient Middle East. I think I might have to leave this area to people with more knowledge than I. In addition, the valuable tending tools add something else to the story. Valuable tools to tend a tree or plant appear in another folk tale, but though I've reread books and searched the internet at length, I can't find out what it is. If you know, please comment, as I'm currently tearing my hair in frustration. The only conclusion I can come to about the tree is that it's the forerunner of the tree in later variants of the tale. Those trees are usually the reincarnation of the mother of Cinderella and also provide what she needs. I don't have any evidence, though. It's mostly guesswork, so please feel free to tell me why I'm wrong on this. On that less than convincing note, let's leave Zozala under the royal canopy with her king and no suggestion of a happy ending, just the futility of going against fate. We'll move on to the food in this tale. Italian folklore has a lot of food and has great possibilities for future episodes. 
In this tale, the king provides a feast of the most splendid provision. It was made of pies and pastries and stews and ragouts, macaroni and sweetmeats, enough to feed a whole army. I've decided to concentrate on macaroni, mostly because I can, and I'm normally in charge here, and because I have the best ever recipe for macaroni and cheese. I know that the recipes have been a bit meat-heavy recently, so this one does contain a touch of bacon. You could definitely remove it for a delicious vegetarian dish. If you can wait before rushing off to make macaroni cheese, any macaroni cheese, now I've mentioned it, I can give you a bit of history to digest with your meal. I know that many Americans consider it to be their own dish, but sadly its history would suggest not. I'll give you Kraft Box Mac and Cheese though, that definitely is American, invented at the height of the Great Depression. Where should we start with our investigation then? Perhaps with the pasta itself, and then discover when it was combined with cheese. Macaroni itself has meant many things to many people over time. The International Pasta Organization traces the word macaroni to the Greeks, who established the colony of Neapolis, modern-day Naples, between 2000 and 1000 BCE, and appropriated a local dish made from barley flour, pasta and water called Macaria, possibly named after a Greek goddess. It isn't what we would consider macaroni, though, and in early recipes it is described as more similar to modern lasagna than the small elbow pasta we have now. One of the oldest medieval cookbooks, Liber de Coquina, dated around 1300, has a mention of recipe for sheets of pasta, boiled and then covered with grated cheese. I hope you appreciate me dusting off my frankly terrible GCSE-level Latin on your behalf. The oldest English cookbook, The Form of Curry, also contains a recipe called macros, essentially another sheet pasta recipe with butter and grated cheese. However, things get more familiar in the Neapolitan recipe collection from the 15th century, an up-to-date translation gives us the following instructions. Sicilian macaroni. Make a dough of the whitest flour, one egg white and rose water. And should you be preparing two plates of it, put in only two or three egg yolks. Make this dough quite tough and make small round sticks of it a hand's width in length and the thickness of a straw. And get a fine iron rod a hand's width in length and the thickness of a cord. Set it on a pastry stick and give them a roll with both hands on a table. Then draw out the rod and you should have the macaroni hollowed through the middle. These macaroni should dry in the sun and can be kept for up to two to three years. Cook them in water or a good meat broth and garnish them with grated cheese when you set them out on plates with fresh butter and mild spices. Boil them gently for an hour. That's obviously a longer shape and a much longer cooking time than for our current macaroni, but it is at least recognisable to our modern palate. It's difficult to know when it morphed from these longer hollow tubes to those we know today, but the world's first commercial production of macaroni, the short, hollow, horny-shaped elbow, was not in Italy, but in Switzerland in 1872. It's likely that a similar pasta would be made at home prior to this. Mrs Beaton raves about pipe macaroni in her book of household management of 1861, so it must have been fairly familiar to your average English person, although probably more similar to today's bucatini. So, we have some ideas about the history of macaroni as a pasta shape, even though it generally means any pasta shape in many languages, now to the dish itself. I could be very bold and say that it's definitely originated in England, but I won't, as I don't actually think that. Unlike Wikipedia, which cites Mrs Beaton, it probably developed independently in various North European countries who had access to a decent amount of dairy and pasta. I imagine Switzerland or Austria could definitely make a very good case. However, I've managed to look at the dish as it developed through English culinary history. I considered investigating the Swiss-Austrian history, but as always, there are always more sources available online in English. Also, my German is terrible, strictly at the where is the town hall, and I would like a room with a shower and no bath level. 
I used to be much better, but failed my A-level due to the set text, which ironically was Grimm's fairy tales in the original German. I can, however, make a fantastic Schwarzwälder Kirschtorte, and my pronunciation of the words is spot on, so those six years weren't completely wasted. Mrs Beaton was definitely not the first English cook to use macaroni or pasta, no matter how much she raves about it. Pasta appeared in early recipes, mostly the form of vermicelli, where it was used as a soup ingredient to add body, and was used to make a pudding with butter, sugar, eggs and various sweet spices, which was then baked. Hannah Glass has an excellent recipe for this in the 1751 edition of her book, The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy, and for the vermicelli itself. It is essentially the same as a standard pasta dough recipe from today, together with the additional note that making it is better than the stuff that comes from abroad. We didn't get this insula all by ourselves, you know, we have history. As time went on, macaroni started to appear in books in a similar capacity as vermicelli, plus that of a savoury side dish with butter or cheese, and sometimes richer egg-based sauces topped with breadcrumbs. I'll raise you Mrs Rundle's A New System of Domestic Cookery from 1810, which had six specific recipes plus several additional mentions against Mrs Beaton any day. Actually, the first specific mention of macaroni cheese in English was in, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, The Experienced English Housekeeper by Elizabeth Raffold in 1769. So, in conclusion, there isn't one. About all you can say about macaroni cheese is that it probably didn't come from Naples, no matter what Alexandre Dumas says in his Grand Dictionnaire de Cuisine. Naples is not known for its creamy pasta sauces, and there are no records of a hollow pasta shape being made there in the 15th century. No one is doubting they eat a lot of pasta in Naples, even macaroni, as in our tale, but it's unlikely to have been with a creamy sauce, unless it was a sweet one, with Byzantine flavours such as cinnamon or rose water. So... You'll just have to get over the disappointment of my lack of conclusions by making and eating my macaroni cheese. It's wonderful, but this is not a quick recipe. If you want a quick but still very tasty recipe, then head over to Serious Eats for their three-ingredient stovetop recipe. But use mature med cheddar, not mild, please. My recipe is a project recipe for a miserable, cold, rainy November day when you have time and don't want to leave the house. It's essentially a giant, cheesy embrace of a meal that has the added bonus of vegetables and should be eaten curled up on the sofa, dressed in pyjamas with your favourite film on the telly. It goes as well with a giant mug of tea as it does with a glass of wine, so go with whatever floats your boat. The cheese sauce has, frankly, ridiculous amounts of cheese in it, but it tastes so good. The roasted sweet potato, or you can use butternut squash, middle layer really adds an extra dimension and an extra layer of different flavour. I'm also going to add on my recipe for spicy baked broccoli, which is amazing. I'm probably biased. I actually love broccoli, always, just steamed or boiled. I am aware that this is not for everybody. However, I've given this to broccoli haters, and they really enjoy it. So it just goes to show. And so we reach the end of today's episode, and I hope you've enjoyed this different version of Cinderella, as well as the short history of macaroni and macaroni cheese. The next episode will follow the same format, but I'm going to make a slight change for my episodes in December. As now, we will start with a story, but the story will be more seasonal. After I discuss the story's origins, I will then take on the history of traditional British festive food, and then a seasonal recipe. What I can't promise, however, is there'll be a direct link from the story to the festive food stuff. So I hope you'll forgive me in the spirit of a seasonal atmosphere. 
So there'll be one more episode after this without even a hint of a fairy light. But then the episodes that follow will almost certainly have a touch of glitter and sparkle and perhaps the whiff of pine in the air. Thanks so much for listening and I hope to welcome you soon to another episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. <laughs>